one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone. Today we're going to tackle all your questions about Byzantium's economic and demographic recovery. We begin with Kickstarter backer SR, who asks about the Roman road network, such an asset in earlier centuries, allowing information and troops to travel quickly around the empire. How had it declined or been maintained in Byzantium, and would it play a role in the empire's fall? And connected to that... How did other infrastructure investments of the earlier empire, aqueducts, walls, trade routes, etc., help preserve the empire when it could no longer recreate them? The latter part of the question takes me back to the siege of 717. It was a point that I believe historian Mark Witow made, that if the Theodosian walls had not already been built the Byzantines of the 8th century could never have created anything comparable from scratch. And the land walls remain the primary answer to this question. Having visited Istanbul now, I've seen firsthand the difference in scale between buildings of Justinian's day and earlier, and those that came later on. It's clear just from looking, that the amount of money, labour and materials needed for those earlier constructions were only possible for a continent-wide civilization. The amount of building material needed to raise up three separate walls across three and a half miles was enormous. Transporting that by sea and then dragging it across land would have been a time-consuming and expensive operation, and then the construction itself, navigating dips and rises in the land, incorporating a river, adding hundreds of separate towers and a moat. It just was a staggering achievement of organization. And the manpower needed was vast. Slaves, construction workers, pack animals, engineers, soldiers, all who had to be paid, or at least fed. The cost was astronomical. If, in 717, the Byzantines had had to build fortifications to save themselves, they would never have come close to the Theodosian walls. They lacked the money, the manpower, the materials. What they might have produced was uh, a single wall with fewer towers made of less solid material. And in order to defend such a wall, far more troops would have been needed. 
and I think the psychological effect of an inferior wall would have told on both sides. Defenders would have been far more inclined to consider abandoning their post, and attackers would have been emboldened to make more attempts to breach it. Uh, for example, the Bulgars never bothered with a formal siege of the capital, despite defeating Roman armies and appearing before the walls uh, on several occasions, but they just didn't have the logistical capabilities to camp outside the walls for months to make any kind of impact on the population inside, and realistically that's what a besieging army had to do. They had to camp outside the walls and wait. There was almost no point in assaulting them. But if the walls looked less intimidating, and if they didn't have the same reputation, if it was known that they'd been thrown up only a century ago, then I think many more enemies would have tried to take them across the years. The impact of those walls can't really be understated. Roman civilization in the form we know it in 1025 would not have survived without them, nor obviously with the location of Constantinople itself if the Romans had decided to make their capital, uh, the new eastern capital at Nicomedia, as Diocletian initially did, then the Arabs would never have settled for annual raids. They would have continued invading until they captured the whole empire. In terms of maintaining Constantinople as a fortress city, the other key, as listener SR suggested, was the water supply. Now this one is harder to be certain about. As you know, the aqueduct of Valens was cut during the 626 siege by the Avars, and it wasn't restored for over a century. So clearly a population of forty to 70,000 people could make do with the water that came in on the earlier system attributed to Hadrian. That route brought water from just north of the city, whereas Valens's aqueduct carried it from over a hundred miles away in Thrace. Once that source was restored, the population grew rapidly again, and after the Turkish invasions, the number of people living in the capital will grow and grow as refugees escape Anatolia, and I think it's a good question to ask whether the city would have been able to act as this refuge if the aqueduct of Valens had been destroyed. Again, it seems unlikely that the Byzantines of the 8th century onwards would have had the materials and expertise to recreate the system from scratch. I mean, they had enough know-how to repair and maintain it, so perhaps I underestimate them, but they certainly wouldn't have had the money to contemplate such a gigantic water system. So I think that's an interesting what-if scenario. If Constantinople's population reached a ceiling of, say, 70,000, and it couldn't really grow any more because there just wasn't enough water, what would have happened, assuming the empire survives and continues to grow? Would other cities have expanded to accommodate the elites who wanted to be nearby but couldn't actually live at the capital? Would Chalcedon or Chrysopolis or Nicaea or Corinth or any number of places have grown into large cities, perhaps rivaling the size of the capital 
And would this have created an alternative power base or even an alternative capital for a rebel looking to seize the throne? Dragging things back to what we do know, uh, I don't think there are any other infrastructure projects which made a huge difference to the Empire's survival. It certainly helped that there were lots of buildings uh, in Constantinople of huge dimensions that could be turned into cisterns and repurposed for uh, private and public use. But, you know, I'm not sure that's vital. Certainly no other city had infrastructure that that mattered to the survival of the empire. You know, everywhere in, in the Balkans and Anatolia was overrun eventually. Um, roads and trade routes um, fell into disrepair over the centuries and you know, when people needed them, when money talked, those roads were cleared and brought back into use. And uh, so I don't think anything physical beyond the defenses of Constantinople and the water supply really changed history. I think there are other gifts from the earlier empire which helped Byzantium survive, um, but these were sort of ideological rather than physical. Um, it's hard to quantify, but Christianity kept uh, the empire connected to their neighbors in a way which gave them moral and financial support. You know, Islam, when it was rampant and wildly successful, won a huge number of converts from uh, Christian populations. And, you know, one could see people in Anatolia being raided every year deciding I'm backing the wrong god um, but Byzantium could still look to the rest of Western Europe and to the mountains in the east and see dozens of people who still proudly proclaim Jesus as their savior and I think this probably had a, a buttressing effect um, and it helped you know forge friendships in Armenia and Venice and elsewhere which might have otherwise been harder to maintain and I think having a population that accepted the right of the emperor to rule and collect taxes from them was a major asset left over from the earlier empire. Again, I think um, what you see in Western Europe with the Franks and the Visigoths and so on is um, land being handed out instead of tax payment. And I think if that had happened, if, if regional warlords had been running Anatolia, then they would have given up after the century, you know, year after year of Arab raids. They would have said, look, this is, why am I defending this patch of land? Um, I'm just getting defeated. I'm just getting mauled every time. So they would look to cut deals with the Arabs and the smart ones amongst them would have converted to Islam rather than go on suffering forever um, without any financial support from the capital. So I think that all made a huge difference. Let's talk more about the Byzantine road network, though. Um, even though it, you know, wasn't uh, crucial to the survival of the empire, it's a very good question. It's something that we just take for granted we haven't really talked about. Um, obviously, Roman roads are famous uh, for um, pre-modern civilization, having these smooth paved roads um as far as the archaeology is concerned the that level of sophistication 
you know, the paved road, a smooth surface with solid foundations laid on top of the ground, really started to go into decline um, in Byzantium during the crisis of the 3rd century. So those roads, particularly in the Balkans and parts of the east, began to decline and they weren't maintained to that same standard. Um, they were in some other parts of the empire. Um, but the road network was maintained. So the ground was still prepared to some extent, was still in use, but it wasn't paved over. Um, but we still find mile markers and inscriptions uh, put up or, or um, refurbished all the way down to Justinian's day. It's only from then on, so obviously the arrival of the Arabs and the wars with the Sassanids, understandably, the road network maintenance collapsed. No more mile markers and inscriptions were put up in the same way that they'd done, uh, that had been done before. And really very little evidence exists of Byzantine innovation in the road network. Uh, they continued to maintain the basic structure of the existing system, but they otherwise left it at that. And in lots of places, archaeologists find little evidence of much artificial pavement at all, just gravel or pebbles that have been trodden into a path and by use have been maintained. Now, we know that major roads were kept up, uh, in part just because the armies kept travelling along the same routes, um, but also because our sources mention them. They mention, usually when someone's complaining and an official or a, or a historian or a general is saying, oh, the roads here are very narrow, or this crossing has become dilapidated. And what would happen is that communities living alongside the roads and bridges were periodically ordered by the government to carry out repairs and would, in theory, have that work counted as part of their tax burden. And uh, this is the sort of imposition that the monasteries lobbied quickly to get out of. And clearly this was hard, unpopular work, and on many occasions local people were compelled to carry it out by the army as the army passed through. And we also know that imperial post stations continue to function on at least the two major roads through Anatolia and one through the Balkans. And this means that inns with stables were stationed at appropriate intervals along the road, allowing officials to change horses each day and maintain steady progress between the capital and the front line. The traditional Roman route through Anatolia went from Chalcedon via Nicomedia, Nicaea, Ankara, Colonea, the Cilician Gates, and then on to Tarsus and Syria. After the Arab raids, the Byzantines preferred an alternative route, which took in Dorylaeum, which became the first military camp of the emperor, then Amorium, the HQ of the Anatolikon, and then on to Iconium, traversing the lakes of the plateau to their south rather than their north. And uh, later on, other branches were brought back into use to take people north to Melitene and Theodosiopolis and so on. Given that other areas of the empire did not disappear from imperial communication, 
it seems that it wasn't that difficult to maintain a basic road network. So long as routes were used regularly, they could be kept clear of major obstacles. And doubtless they were potholed or uneven tracks of mud in places. But we almost never hear of routes becoming impassable. One or two references to emperors who had to stop a march and have the road cleared. And obviously... Lots of the old Roman roads in places like the Balkans did disappear from imperial control for centuries. But when they're brought back online, the same route seems to exist. So presumably the local communities um, of Slavs and other peoples in the Balkans kept using at least the major roads. And, uh, you know, as we talked about in the narrative, the Bulgarian state, which Basil II defeated was able to maintain trade along the Via Ignatia, despite being at war with Byzantium for decades. So clearly, people uh, and animals were travelling the roads pretty much constantly. So even if the ground, you know, the, the nice paving stones were all destroyed, people just kept walking across the rough ground. And when work was done, that was nice. And when it wasn't, you'd hope that... You know, hundreds of people treading on the ground was keeping the path relatively smooth and people would clear things as they went. Certainly, the existence of these road networks made life easier for the Arabs on their raids, but people adapted quickly to this changed circumstance. You know, lots of communities moved away from the roads, they migrated to the high peaks or they found refuge in the countryside uh, to disappear to when when the raids were on. If the roads had been deliberately destroyed or overgrown in order to stop the Arabs from being able to raid, it would also have isolated these communities from imperial support, possibly with the result that they would have abandoned their loyal tax-paying ways. So I think that's why the system just sort of calcified as it did. Uh, when the Turks begin their migration into Anatolia, the existence of a road network won't make much difference either way. Uh, they will come as pastoralists, preferring the barren plateau that the Arabs had disdained to colonize. And, uh, you know, they were used to riding horses across unpaved terrain, you know, on the steps so the existence of roads didn't make a difference to the success or otherwise of their invasions so that's it for uh, roads and logistics uh, for now thank you so much to listener sr for his support and for those questions here is another backer uh, listener pcp who asks I'm curious what, if anything, we know about the demographics of the Roman state during the Macedonian resurgence, and did population growth contribute to the empire's expansionary phase? Also, do we know the proportional distribution of the population between each region and Constantinople? So, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I don't think the recovery in the size of the population had a direct effect on the military success of the empire, but it certainly didn't hurt. What about actual numbers, though? Obviously, what I'm about to tell you is academic guesswork and should not be quoted as fact. 
and I'm going to have to give you a high to low here. So rough estimates put the population of the empire in 1025 at somewhere between 12 and 18 million. Now, I have far more data to go on with the lower end, with the guess of 12 million. So let's work with that for now. But uh, if you have a lot of time on your hands, you can scale these numbers up <laughs> uh, if you like. So 12 million in 1025, that's growth from, say, 7 million in the dark days of the 8th century, though obviously that was with less imperial territory. And in 1025, we're counting uh, parts of Armenia and Bulgaria and Antioch and so on. Uh, what was the division of population between different parts of the empire? Roughly three and a half million in the Balkans and seven million in Anatolia. The other million and a half are made up of Italians, Armenians and Syrians. Remember though, very rough numbers. I've put up some maps which will help you understand population density, um, but this hasn't changed during the course of our podcast. Greece, Thrace, the coasts of Anatolia, and obviously around Antioch and the coasts of Syria, they're the most densely populated places. The mountains and the plateau are the least. Um, and if you, you, know, you check out those maps, it'll become obvious um, where populations lie and why Arab raids, um, you know, didn't damage the empire too much because the population centers were all in the west of Anatolia. Uh, as I mentioned in episode 169, our best guess for Constantinople at this time is somewhere between 150 and 250,000 people and growing. To put these lower end numbers in context, my atlas of world population history tells me that at the same time France had a population of about six and a half million, Italy five million, England two million. Now I should caution you these countries are being measured by their modern map size so direct comparisons are very tricky but it should give you a sense of Byzantium's position. The population of Anatolia was about the same as France and the population of Greece, about the same as England. So Byzantium was a well-populated state by the standards of 1025, but Western Europe was growing much faster. Listener PCP also asks, Since the loss of the eastern provinces, what were the trade routes that came through the empire? What cities fed trade to and from Constantinople, and what were the major trade goods of this era? Did the Islamic states ever try to cut out the Romans? From the way this question is phrased, I think listener PCP is thinking back to Roman Sassanid times, when there were officially designated cities for trade like Dara and Nisbis, and when the goods of the Silk Road had to pass through Persian hands to reach the Roman Empire. This was the impression I got, anyway, from the History of Rome podcast. And it's an example of why I'm keen to go back and study the earlier empire for myself, because I'm sure the situation was more complicated than that. 
I mean, goods could have reached Alexandria without Persian interference or be carried across the steppe down to the Danube or smuggled across the desert by the Arab tribes. But anyway, that is for another time. In 1025, the trade routes came from every conceivable direction. The Italians by sea, from the west, the Bulgarians overland, the Rus across the Black Sea, the Caucasian peoples uh, bringing goods to Trebizond or overland to Theodosiopolis or Melitene, the Arabs to Antioch or Tarsus or Italia, anyone who could reach a Byzantine port or city could trade with the Romans. More to PCP's point, though, goods from further away, so India or China, would still reach Islamic lands first, so spices came to Egypt and silk might come from Baghdad, but they were generally flogged to local merchants who would head off and sell them to the Byzantines or to Italian middlemen in many cases. We have several uh, references in our sources um, to times when the Byzantines forbid trade with the Caliphate uh, or its or the Fatimids um, as part of ongoing conflict. So presumably the Arabs also stopped selling goods to the Romans when they were making a major attack. But generally, trade went on between the two sides regardless of their perpetual state of conflict. And this seems to be fairly typical across world history. I remember uh, in school being shocked to discover that the United States was selling grain to the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. So, no, no concerted attempt to blockade Byzantium was ever attempted for long, and obviously that would have been impractical without also cutting off supplies coming into Constantinople from the north and west. In terms of major tradable goods, I think, you know, we stick with silk and spices as the most highly prized items because they couldn't be attained anywhere else, or that is, until the Byzantines started growing their own silk. Um, but as we discussed recently during the episodes on Constantinople, um, the authorities still welcomed and looked after Muslim silk traders, so it's possible that Eastern supplies were of a better quality or a different quality, or simply that there was just so much demand that um, there was no point in, in turning anyone away. Um, the other major item always in demand um, that was difficult to get were slaves, uh, particularly eunuchs. I talked a lot about this back in episode 114, where we explored the triangle of trade between Venice, Byzantium and the Caliphate and the goods that they exchanged. And then in episode 119, I talked about the capital's guilds and the goods that they dealt in, and I also listed the prices of various household items in episode 122. So check out those for more on tradable goods and everyday trade. Let's move now to the topic of Greece, which we talked about last episode and which several listeners had more questions about. Listener DRU asks whether the Greek cities were shadows of their former selves, and why do they seem to play no part in Byzantine history? 
As we discussed last episode, the cities of Greece were growing and developing small export industries. But obviously, listener DRU is referring to their famous past during the Persian and Peloponnesian Wars. And this is a question that's come up every century, and I'm afraid I I think I need to do a little myth-busting to break this one down. I mean, the reason that the Greek victories over the Persians were so impressive and made such an impression on the Greek consciousness at the time was that the Persians controlled the known world while the Greeks were, you know, relatively small city-states. And after their victory, uh, the Athenians came to dominate their neighbours and the islands of the Aegean. But as far as I know, the population of Athens was about 30,000 at its height, um, with another, say, 15,000 working uh, at the port and between the two. And obviously they had the the population of the countryside um, as well. But those numbers are comfortably dwarfed by Roman imperial cities. And the, the famous war that followed between Sparta and Athens is so well known to us because the writing... The, the history that was written about it was preserved and taught to children all across the, the Greek world, and it was cherished and preserved by the Romans. And if you want to know more about the, the massive influence that Thucydides's writing had, then check out the Byzantine stories episodes on Procopius. So Athens and Sparta were medium-sized cities by the standards of the day, and despite seeming like powerful places in our sense of the ancient world, they never left Greece to attack the Persians. They didn't have the the logistical capability to do so. And they were both easily outgunned by the armies that Alexander put together, and they were dominated by the states which his successors established across the eastern Mediterranean. And although... Athens maintained a reputation for learning. It was a small city within the Roman Empire. Athenians with ambition headed for Rome or Constantinople or even Thessaloniki. This sounds like I'm denigrating ancient Greece, which is not my intention, but in the context of the continent-wide empires which surrounded them, the Greek city-states were relatively small fry. Within the Roman world, they were never more than medium-sized places, a long way from anywhere politically vital. And obviously, the Athenian Acropolis always looked impressive because of its location high up on a hill. But dozens of other cities had temples of similar size and public amenities to match. Naturally, as the giant buildings of antiquity gave way to the smaller structures of medieval times, those looking up at the Parthenon uh, might perceive themselves to be living in the shadow of their former glory. But in 1025, that heyday was almost 1,500 years in the rearview mirror. 
So I think most 11th century Athenians viewed those monuments as remnants from a distant past, rather than comparing their own achievements to those of Pericles. I think part of our conceptual struggle with this is that we think Athenians of 1025 saw themselves as direct descendants of Pericles. A lot of this confusion comes from the fact that there is a country called Greece in the same location as those we call the ancient Greeks. But in Homer and Thucydides, those were not Greeks. They were Achaeans and Athenians and Spartans, and in 1025, they were Romans. Greece was not a nation-state that lived through all of this, feeling bruised pride at its loss of status. It is difficult to get our heads around this, because our national identities are such a fixed part of our lives. But Romans of 1025 did not think much about the fact that they spoke Greek. It was their language, and they shared it with the fine people of Homer and Thucydides, but they did not consider it the language of a nation which they had appropriated any more than they thought the name Roman really belonged to Italians. Our knowledge of what came before and after warps our sense of how people thought. Within the Byzantine story, the cities of Greece don't play a major role, simply because they were located well away from the major zones of combat. They were not subject to Arab raids, and they were only occasionally troubled by the Bulgars, and this peripheral location was largely a good thing, protecting the peoples there from the worst of the invasions. And as we talked about in the last episode, it put them in a good position to trade with the Italians and actually export finished products. And that was quite rare in Byzantium. Many parts of the empire merely exported food and raw materials, rather than having any industry of their own. Listener ST and Listener E also asked about Greece's size and role within the empire, and as we discussed earlier, estimates put the population of the peninsula around the 1 million mark, or scale that up a bit, with Thessaloniki easily the largest city, somewhere in the fifty to 100,000 region. None of the others would have been above 25,000. 1 million or so is a lot, given the size of Greece. Um, but within the an empire of 12 million, obviously, it's only one-twelfth of the population, hence its relative lack of importance in the narrative. Finally today, then, listener GT asks about contrasts between the Byzantine economy and those of Western Europe. Now, having not studied the latter, I can't offer a detailed analysis, but historian Alan Harvey says that many of the trends we've we've observed with Byzantium were shared by East and West. Uh, so this was a period of economic growth, with populations expanding, more coins being minted, and towns getting larger. The major difference between East and West was the role of the state within the economy. Byzantium was a conservative place in economic terms, 
as we discussed in episode 119, commercial activity wasn't viewed as an honorable business by the elites. Now, of course, they were all at it. They were all producing goods on their estates for sale, and many of them sponsored mercantile ventures. But ultimately, status came with land. And so maintaining estates was always seen as much more important than making money from trade. Now, what's that got to do with the state? Well, so long as the government taxed the land and paid you a salary in gold coin, then everyone remained committed to maintaining the status quo. There was little incentive to try and develop large industries when there was guaranteed profit if you stayed on the right side of the emperor or greased the right palms at court. Whereas in northern Italy, to take one example, no strong state existed. As you know, the country was divided between the German emperors, uh, Byzantium occasionally, the Lombard princes, and so this left elite men living in city-states unable to acquire large property portfolios, so they turned to trade and industry to increase their wealth and power. And so in Italian towns, a businessman became a powerful figure, and generally the history of that region, of course, is a struggle between uh, the men of industry and business and the local landowning aristocracy. You know, a struggle for political power plays out in many of the, the famous cities of Italy. In Byzantium, we just don't see that um, class struggle because anyone who'd made a fortune in trade would buy land and try to join the club at Constantinople. Um, the towns of Western Europe were thus slowly developing a culture based around commercialism, whereas in Byzantium trade was a means to an end and could be abandoned once you'd become a member of the landed gentry. And as we saw in episode 119, at Constantinople, this huge trading emporium where fortunes could have been made, merchants were heavily regulated and prevented from exploiting the populace to turn a profit. That's it for the economy. Thanks again to the Kickstarter backers. I am hard at work on the videos at the same time as keeping the podcast going. And next time we cover the Seljuk Turks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.